Well, good morning. If you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, page 809 in our church Bibles, if that would be of some help to you, page 8, 9. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 8 all the way to verse 16. Just keep that in mind. Just a couple of announcements. Just by way of reminder, next Sunday morning, our two services, the first will be at 8.30, and the second will be at 10.30 in light of the Easter um, holiday. So 8.30, first service, 9.30, breakfast if you would like that. 10.30, second morning worship service. Also, Good Friday evening at 6.30 will be our Good Friday communion service. And we'll be serving communion that evening for the month. So that would be this Friday at, at 6.30. If you're wondering how long the service will be, roughly about an hour, that would be of some help, help to you. So... Here we are, verse 8. We've been working through 1 Corinthians verse by verse since October. So if you're new here, this is the reason why we're here this morning. We're in this part of our Bible. So, all right, let's hear the word of the Lord. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it's good for them, not to, it's good for them to stay unmarried as I am. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say this, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or a woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's, let's bow and let's pray together. Our God and Father, we are so very glad that you have brought us together here this morning to worship you. And God, what a privilege this is. And as we think of the society in which we live in, wherein half the people who are married will eventually be separated from from one another, we pray that you will help us in everything as we study these verses. Help us to understand them so that we would be committed to them. And Father, please keep us very low-minded, especially if we have our own self-assertions in these things. Teach us that Father knows best and that you've always known best. Make us non-judgmental to others in this. Just quietly humble and thankful that you care so much for us that you have an unchanging truth for us so that we would get this right and that we would live to the praise of your glory. So thank you for this, Father. Please help us. Have mercy on all of us for Jesus' sake. Amen. 
as it is with all precious gifts from God, when we take them at a time or do with them as we would with, with no reverence for God or no reference to God, we will soon find ourselves in great difficulty. And this can clearly be seen in relation to marriage. And marriage and all that, that is given in it has the potential to be one of the greatest privileges and one of the greatest experiences a human being could ever experience on this earth. But divorce and all those things that follow it also has the potential to be one of the most painful experiences a human being could also ever have on this earth. There's the the dreadfulness of a separation. Somebody has to move out. Somebody has to move somewhere else. The idea that the marriage bonds have been broken or someone else might be the one um, with the one that we said I do to and the one that we promised. We promised till death do us part. And I think that those are probably just a few of the pains which would just break a person's heart in divorce. Now the Bible, and we should thank God for this, the Bible, as we've been learning in chapters 5 and 6 and 7, is pretty straightforward about these things and is honest, and the Bible is not naive when it comes to the topic of human sexuality. You see, God wants us to get this right. God put the desire of sexual fulfillment in most every human being. And so it would be one thing if the pressure and confusion on marriage and and divorce and singleness and sexuality, it'd be one thing if it was outside the church. We We would understand that. But when it's inside the church, that's not so good. What's happening in Corinth, it could equally happen here. Because the data people are always telling us, and this is a tremendous disappointment, it should be, that the average Christian uh, right now really fares no better than the average pagan in relation to marriage and divorce and singleness and, and human sexuality. And so because of this, a morning just like this would prove to be very useful if we decided to pay attention to what the Bible has to say. And I said this last time, I'm going to say it again, but no apology. If, if somebody thinks that the Bible is somehow outdated or irrelevant, it's a book for another time, another place, then, then either they have actually never took them, taken the time to read the Bible or they have never actually been properly taught the Bible, which is one of the things that we should appreciate about expository preaching. Because in expository preaching, we're going to get to everything eventually. Nothing will be covered up. Everything will be laid bare. And so what Paul does then is he gives very clear instructions to those who find themselves in these specific circumstances. And if your Bible is open, and I sure hope it is, you can see in verses 8 and 9 that Paul is speaking to, first, number one, the unmarried and the widows. Okay, so this group would include those who have never been married, singles, but it would also include those who have been married, but then later on divorced. And you can see that the one group is specifically mentioned by Paul, namely those who were now single as a result of the death of their spouse. So just in case you're thinking that, okay, this probably doesn't concern me, just think this through. This touches every congregation, eventually. Because most of us will face this reality. Most of us, more than likely, if it hasn't happened already, will be alone. Because either our lovely wife has died or our lovely husband has died. And the question then, it's an honest question, what plans should a person make when they think about the question of marriage or remarriage as in the case of the widows? 
Because Paul has made it very clear. Listen carefully. A marital sex is godly. It is spiritual. It's part of our chemistry. And God made this for almost everyone. So those first seven verses of chapter 7 that we worked through last time, Paul was making it so clear that marriage is the norm God had given for men and women. And singleness was not the norm, even though singleness is also a gift from God, just like marriage and singleness and celibacy is very, very good. And so you won't think that Paul is somehow like removed from this, that he's just, you know, writing behind the desk. If you look at verse 8, the term that Paul uses, unmarried, agomas is the Greek word. It's good for them to stay unmarried as I am. That term was specifically used for those who have been previously married. In other words, it's more than likely that the Apostle Paul was at one time married. And whether he lost his wife by way of death or divorce, maybe a divorce because of his conversion, we can't be sure, but it's more than likely that Paul was a divorcee. You know, and I said in the first, and I'll say it in the second service, this makes sense. Who are all the heroes in the Bible? We're all the heroes in the Bible. We're just average, normal people. Right? Just regular guys. Moses, a murderer. Paul might as well have been until grace got a hold of them. And now he might have been a divorcee. So he's writing on this stuff then that matters to him personally. So writing as an unmarried, Paul says... The very best, verse 8, the very best circumstance for the unmarried is to stay unmarried. Okay, the best thing for the unmarried to stay unmarried. Which takes us again right back to verse 32 because that's our reference here. Because if we ask Paul, okay, Paul, why is it that you're so desiring that people lived unmarried lives? This is his answer. Ready? It's for the sake of the gospel. That's how important the gospel is. So look at verse 32, chapter 7, if you want to look there. I would love for you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of, his, of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. And an unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. Now, this is his line of thinking. It's very plain. It's very simple. The best situation is for the unmarried to remain unmarried, feeling no pressure whatsoever so that they can fully engage, you ready? They can fully engage in the work of the kingdom of God. That's how important it is to Paul, right? The work of the kingdom, the work of the church, the work of the Lord's affairs. So if you're thinking, well, that doesn't sound like much fun, then you probably haven't done the work of the Lord. And yet people still do what to singles? especially young widows or old widows. What do they do? Hey, when, when are you getting hitched? You see, God would have us to stop that stuff. The next best situation is for the person who finds that they have to express their God-given sexual desire. And if that's the case, guess what? They can but it's to be done in the context of marriage. Look at verse 9. If they cannot control themselves, if they must express their sexuality, they should marry because it's better to marry than to burn with passion. And remember, we ought not to think that this is degrading or somehow we're back to, you know, the dirty little boy or the dirty little girl syndrome. No. They have been given a gift from God, given the gift of sexual desire. That is fine. They want to and they need to express it. That is fine. 
and they may express it happily and frequently, but only in holy matrimony. Because the worst situation that one can be in is to be single, burned with passion, but for whatever reason, especially for spiritual reasons, they're compelled not to marry. And so they do without. Living unmarried, but knowing themselves needing to be married. How miserable and how unnecessary. So Paul clearly doesn't think, because many in his day were teaching this, and some in our day do as well, that you should suppress your sexual desire, to suppress wanting to be married, and somehow that is commendable. The Bible would say that is not commendable because that is not in the Scriptures. The idea that one wants to be married, but not being married will somehow give you spiritual props, (laughs) that is not a biblical notion. So this is what Paul is saying. Listen carefully. If they can't, hint, hint, if they can't, then they can. They can't suppress it, then they can enjoy it. J.B. Phillips puts it like this. If they find they have not the gift of self-control in such matters, by all means, let them get married. I think it's far better for them to be married than to be tortured by unsatisfied, God-given desire. Right? Tortured by God-given, unsatisfied desire. Desire. And loved ones, that is good, that is honest, and it's true to the biblical principle. And I want you to think about this in the context of a small town Christian widow. Young or old Christian widow. Or let's say it's our moms or our dads and and they are widowed. Paul would say, leave them alone if they want to remarry. You see? Because personally, and this is me, not Christ, I feel so bad for anyone who is a widow and they're in a social context where the acceptability clock is ticking in the minds of everyone else to how long it's socially acceptable before once one can begin dating and then on to marriage. You see, no one has any right to that. Only the widow. So we should leave them alone. I think it's kind of snooty. I would say, who do we think we are? God dispenses the gifts. We dare not speak as if we are God himself in this. But the only thing that we can say for sure, look at verses 39 and 40 in your Bible, chapter 7. This is what we can say for sure. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes. But, this is the big but here, he must Belong to the Lord. That's it. He must belong to the Lord. And then Paul towing the party line, in my judgment, she's happier if she stays as she is. And so there you have it. That is spirituality. Paul makes the categorical statement, marriage is lifelong. He makes another categorical statement, if the husband dies, it's okay to remarry, but he must belong to the Lord. Now you would think that only the young widows would, would need to hear this, Right? That they would need to hear this when they uh, are in that situation, that they must belong to the Lord. You would think that only young people would need to be reminded that you are not to marry a non-Christian because what, does, you know, what fellowship does light have with darkness? So don't date a non-Christian and holy cow, don't, don't marry a non-Christian. But what does experience teach us? <laughs> what does the internet teach us? Well, it would teach us to be careful. I mean, I grew up in a context where the only sexual purity videos and dating series that were just shoved down my throat were for teens. And I haven't, as of yet, seen such a thing for older widows. But have you ever been around an older widow? 
Have you ever listened to her talk about her lost husband or, or vice versa? And they tell you that they are so tired of eating alone. And they are so tired of that big empty bed and that big empty chair. And they're tired of having no one to talk to and no one to share their life with. Do you know what kind of pressure it would be and how easy it could be to give in to marriage with a non-Christian? I mean, do you know how easy that is? We say around here, the best of men are men at best. We could say, uh, forgive me, the best of older widows are older widows at best. And one's number of years does not guarantee the certainty of spiritual maturity. And, and please don't be angry with me, but have you seen older widows lately? I mean, they're very beautiful. Very beautiful. But that's neither here or there. So the fact that they are so attractive makes Paul's statement even more relevant. And again, forgive me, the fact that they, we have now medicinal helps with human sexuality, it makes it even more relevant. So what Paul is doing is just being flat out honest. So he says, the widow is free to marry, but only to another Christian. Okay, that's the first group, the unmarried and the widows. The best situation, stay married. But if you cannot, get married. It's absolutely fine, but only to another Christian. Second group then, to the married, verse 10 and verse 11. And this group is a group that Paul is addressing who, people who are married but somehow they've determined that they no longer like to or they no longer want to stay married. And again, how relevant is this? We, we talk to people frequently that they no longer think that they need to be married or they no longer uh, would like to be married. So either they made the mistake in the time they have married or they made a mistake in the person they have married or have come to believe that they would be far more useful to the Lord if they could just be single. So they begin to start that divorce proceedings. Maybe not paperwork yet, but the, mentally they're on that road. It'd be so much better for the Lord if X was gone or if Y was gone. And again, I, I've known people like that. So remember the context in Corinth. The context in Corinth would be ripe for this kind of thing because they were teaching that, okay, if you want to be really spiritual, then singleness is the way to go. So what Paul does here is he makes a very clear statement. And what he does here is he points to the fact that he's not speaking on his own. That's verse 10. But he's speaking on an issue which Jesus Christ himself spoke to. So this is divine and specific revelation. Jesus gave specific instructions about marriage. And let me just read you a part of Matthew 19. Jesus quotes from Genesis 2. For this reason, a man will leave his mother and the two will become one flesh. And honor, he says, don't paraphrase, and no one may separate that. Mark chapter 10, 9 and 11. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Now, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand this is a categorical statement. This is an unchanging truth from the mouth of our Lord. And so what Paul does is he gets on that horse and he rides it, verse 10, to the married. I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does, okay, in other words, if she's disobedient and she separates, then she only has two options. She must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. In other words, the same thing is true for the husband. So taking what Jesus taught and what Paul wrote, clearly then the commitment in marriage was designed till death does us part. Marriage underwritten by God, a, a mere man and a mere woman has no right to, to, to play any games with that. And, and I was thinking that if you, know, if you have a good 
marriage, a good Christian marriage, we'd say like, yes, that is good. I really, really like her. I really, really like him. Please, God, keep it going as long as you would. Be merciful and keep the thing going for a long, long time. But if you had a bad or tedious marriage, you, you, know, you might be like, okay, whatever. You know, another thing not going my way. I guess I'm stuck with them. Regardless, what Paul fundamentally says to the Christian considering the possibility of divorcing is simply this. Do not. Don't do it. Don't do it. If there's a difficulty in the marriage, commit yourself to God. He, he, he can change bad things and make them good things. He makes everything new. Don't you believe that, Christian? Don't you believe that? And could it be that easy? Now, we're going to get to the exception in a moment because some of you are thinking, okay, there's one exception that there has in the scriptures that makes divorce a possibility, and not a certainty, but makes it a possibility. And we'll get to that, but I want you to hear me. Remind yourself of the context that Paul writes to because, you guys, it's so much like ours. The city of Corinth was filled with fornication. People were moving in and out of marriages, sexual activity just, just thriving, Paul gets on the scene and says, one of the things the gospel says is stop it. No more hanky-panky. And can you imagine how you, you, you were a Christian and you were hearing Paul say this and, and he was saying, now listen, you've got to stay together and you, you don't have any option except if you decide to separate, then you've got to either reconcile or celibacy for the rest of your life. Thus saith Jesus. That's it. Now, that's, that's kind of good parenting, right? When kids say they want it their way, and we say, okay, but here, here's what's going to happen. If you want it your way, here's, here's the fallout of that. Okay, then what about the exception? You know the exception, Matthew 19. Jesus qualifies his statement in Mark 10. Anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Now, you think with me. And you know, when you get to your Bibles, you just have to think so much these days. Think, think, think. Okay, so why doesn't Paul say that there? Isn't that a good question? Why, Paul, do you not give that um, sexual immorality clause that Jesus said? Why didn't you say it here in chapter 7? Well, I don't know the exact answer, but this is what I think. He didn't give them the Jesus exception clause because the background of probably most or many of the Christians there were so filled with fornication and so filled with sexual sins, their background, that if he had wrote to them without the opportunity of trying to explain it or sit down and, and talk it through or preach it through, if he would have just written flat out, if your spouse has any sexual immorality in their background, then divorce is fine, then probably a whole lot of couples in the church in Corinth would have had grounds to get a divorce. And human nature being what it was, good marriages with bright futures might have been ruined and potentially good marriages who might have been going through a rough spot could have been ruined as well. So the past having been dug up, not by Jesus Christ, but by the unforgiveness of the spouse. And thus making sexual immorality bigger than the grace of God at the death of Jesus Christ for our sins. Including sexual sins. Oh, you bet including sexual sins. You go through this all the time as a pastor. Romans 4, blessed is the man and blessed is the woman whose transgressions are forgiven. Blessed is the person who, who the Lord, whose sins the Lord does not count against them. 
Okay, that's great, but you don't know what they did in that place, and you don't know what they did with her or with him. Okay, whatever. I know grace. I know grace, and I know that there's nothing bigger than the cross. John Stott puts it like this. The Christians at Corinth were not so firmly rooted in the reality of regeneration and renewal in the Holy Spirit as to give them the stability required. Listen carefully. The stability required to deal with a partner who raked up a murky past after a bitter domestic feud, one difficult evening after a bad week at work. Now, is that not honest again? A partner who raked up a murky past After a bitter domestic feud, one difficult evening after a bad week at work. So you come home and your spouse is ticked. In the Corinthian context, they're not stable enough to apply gospel truth and to enjoy gospel promises. An argument breaks out. One sin, old sins dug up. Sins which have been forgiven and covered by the precious blood of Jesus. If Paul understanding this, were to give them the notion that divorce was fine, then no doubt, because of the context, because of their sorry history, many would have immediately went ahead and gotten divorced. Especially if you add to that the idea that people are going around saying what? That singleness is the way to go. Singleness is the only way to be a proper Christian. So get rid of her. Get rid of him. They've sinned against you anyway. And off you go into a spiritual uh, nirvana because you're a single person. So, so, Divorce would be just like the perfect way out for somebody. Anybody that is just just tired of being with them. And you got your card. That's it. They did it. See? They did it. I'm good. I'm clear. Low moment. Old sin. Flame low. Out the door. Marriage over. And it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't. That's how big grace is. First group, the unmarried and the widows. The second group, the married. Finally, what about mixed marriages? That's verses 12 through 16. What about the Christian married to an unbeliever who no longer wants to be married to that unbeliever? Okay, so you have two believers that may, or two, excuse me, two unbelievers marry. Time goes on. Either the husband or wife, thank God, become a Christian. They become a follower of Christ, okay? Now, the Bible makes it clear. A Christian single, as we said, should not marry a non-Christian. Father knows best. 2 Corinthians 6.14 makes that very, very clear. The situation in verse 12 is different. You had an unbelieving couple, and later on, one spouse is converted. One becomes a follower of Christ, and the other is not. So the Christian spouse, and if you're a Christian here this morning, Remind yourself of these wonderful graces. We have a new king and we have new loyalties and we have new certainties. We have new standards. We have new powers. We have new responsibilities. And by and large, we have a new way of life. Okay? The non-Christian spouse has none of this. In fact, they're in opposition to God. One is light. One is darkness. One, One is life. The other is death. What are you supposed to do in that arrangement? Because becoming a Christian and being a Christian really, really matters. So in my files, I found this quote from a gentleman who lived in South Africa. He is a brain surgeon. He is unconverted. 
His wife was newly converted. The question was given to him, what do you find so difficult about your wife's newfound faith in Christ? And listen to what the brain surgeon says. She is no longer the person whom I originally fallen in love with. She's not the same person I decided to marry. There's another man about the house to whom she is all the time referring her every decision and whom she chooses to consult for his advice and instructions. I am no longer the leader in my own house. Jesus gives the orders. Jesus sets the pace because Jesus is her king. See how real that is? And so Paul begins to address that situation. And when you look at verse 12 and see, to the rest, I say this, I, not the Lord, don't be troubled by that statement. This, this statement doesn't mean that what Paul's saying is uninspired. He's not saying that this is, this is his own personal opinion. What Paul is saying in this is this. In verses 10 and 11, Jesus gave direct, specific revelation in his earthly ministry about divorce and marriage. Here, in this situation, an unbeliever, two unbelievers marry, and one becomes a Christian, Jesus never taught exactly on mixed marriages. Okay? Again, Jesus never taught on exactly what to do when a man who is converted marries, or unconverted, marries an unconverted woman. They marry, one of them becomes converted, the other remains not. So what do we do? Well, Paul is speaking for God here. Sometimes people like to say Paul versus Jesus. That game won't work here. Paul is authorized to speak on Jesus' behalf. And so he does. Verse 12. If any brother has a wife who's not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And he says the same thing in reverse. So this is what I want you to know. Everything in that marriage is subservient to the attitude of the unbelieving husband and wife. Get that. Everything in that marriage, one Christian, one is not, is subservient to the attitude of the unbelieving husband or wife. And you guys, that is so Christian. Others first, right? Others first before the self. Some in Corinth were teaching that if you were a believer and your spouse was not, it was okay to leave them if you want. Paul would say, by God-given authority, absolutely not. If they are happy to live with you, you continue to happily live with them. Listen carefully. Your happiness is subservient to their happiness. And again, that is Christian. And, and you know and I know that the whole happy thing in marriage drives many marriages to despair. It's another time, another place. We'll speak about that. If you're happy, if they're happy to live with you, you continue to live happily with them. They are first. And then Paul gives that gigantic statement in verse 14. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. So, so apparently the questions were coming like this. Will the uncleanness of a believer or an unbeliever strike out the cleanness of the believer, right? So you have, you have one clean believer. You have an unclean, unconverted believer. When they get together, together, isn't something horrible going to happen, right? Remember what Paul said, chapter 6, verse 16. The two will become one flesh. When a husband and a wife, whoever they may be, are together, they're in that intimacy become one. So if an unbelieving wife 
is together with a believing husband, does the, uh, does the unbelieving wife wreck things? Is, he making, is she making the believing husband unclean? Or vice versa? Because that's what some were saying in the church. Paul says, no, no, actually it's the opposite. The unbelieving marriage partner has been sanctified by the believing marriage partner. Well, do you mean that the unbeliever becomes automatically a Christian because they're married to one? No, not at all. Paul is simply saying this, and listen carefully, Christian couples. There is a terrific benefit in the home where there is at least one Christian husband or wife, one Christian mom or dad. And some of you can relate to this. One Christian in a home graces the home tremendously. You, you have at least one person filled with the Holy Spirit. You have one person at least filled with hope and peace and settled certainties about her life or his life and, and death and what comes after. So the unbeliever might be groping around in the house. You know, what's the use? I'm so miserable. There's never going to be enough. I'm so unhappy. Things will never be great. And on and on. I mean, that, that should be, that should be for the unbelieving spouse. That's understandable. But the believing spouse brings Jesus Christ into everything. And they talk to Jesus Christ about everything. And they serve everyone in his name. And you guys, for 2,000 years, that has changed a whole lot of situations. So I was thinking about this whole thing. And I stopped here and I thought, Christian marriage is great. Christian marriage is great. Some people, at least, and I I remember growing up in this kind of context, some people might make it appear like burdensome. But it's not. I mean, don't you hear this? This is tremendously difficult, and, if you're, and you're going to have to work tremendously hard in your marriage and because it's going to be tremendously difficult, and you're going to have to be uh, tremendously used to not getting your way, and you're going to have to be tremendously used to having long periods of time of being tremendously unsatisfied. And the person who was saying that was tremendously serious, followed by, so read my book and buy my tape, and I bet you things will get better. You see, as a Christian saved by grace, most of the time I really don't understand that. As a man who's been married 24 years, (laughs) most of the time I don't really understand that. A Christian man or a Christian woman are two people saved by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. They're new creations, they have new powers, and they have promised care. And yes, they may suffer as a Christian, as a Christian marriage, but, but would to God they suffer for the kingdom. Not because somebody's just being a moron in the marriage. You understand this? I think I heard somewhere this week that $4.6 billion are going to be spent on the Easter holiday. That's fine, $4.6 billion on the Easter holiday. I, I wonder how many billions of dollars are spent on trying to help Christian marriages. And still, over the years, we fare no better than the average pagan marriage. Somebody has to think that through. Okay, then what about the kids? Verse 14, right? Otherwise, your children will be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. What does that mean? Okay, what does it mean that the kids of uh, that kind of marriage are 
holy. We'll keep the context in mind here. There were people teaching that sex itself was all the time sin. And they challenged the sex goodness even in marriage. And they taught that a negative times a positive equals a negative. I mean, that's true in math, right? A negative, unconverted spouse times sexual innuendo times a converted spouse equals unclean, unholy kids. Okay? Okay, yeah. Children are born natural, uh, natural born sinners. Original sin is in the heart of every person born into this world. Paul's distinction here is not between, the, is not between saved and unsaved. What Paul is saying is this. If you become a Christian... While your spouse remains unconverted. And people are teaching that you should divorce them. And if you do not divorce them, you better not sleep with them. Because if you do, then your born children will be a mess. If people are saying that stuff, do not believe them for a nanosecond. You enjoy your marital privileges. A a married, convert, an unconverted married. Yes, enjoy your marital privileges and rejoice in the children of your youth. God will take care of your children. You just live for Jesus Christ. And you will have a sanctifying influence over them as just as you do your unbelieving spouse. Now you know this, but I just want to review this. Converted husband times converted wife does not always equal converted children, right? We know that. We know that. And an unconverted husband times a converted wife does not automatically equal unconverted children and vice versa. We know that, right? We should know that. That's why all the conversions in the Bible are, are older people. You don't see any children being converted in the Scripture. You see older people. I mean, we live in America, and we, if we don't get them by nine, no, it's over. Blah! Get rid of that thinking. Anyway, let's listen to John MacArthur for a second. This is what he says on this. The sanctification here is matrimonial and familial, not personal and spiritual. Although the believer's faith cannot suffice for, for the salvation for anyone but themselves, he or she is often the catalyst for other family members coming to faith. And that's true. Okay, then finally, verses 15 and 16. If the unbeliever leaves the marriage, okay, if the unbeliever decides to take the initiative, because the Christian knows their duty is to help uphold a lifelong uh, sanctity of that marriage, But if the unbeliever leaves, Paul says, look at it there, let them go. You can let them go. Let them go. If the unbeliever cannot be part and parcel of being wedded to their Christian spouse, let them go. You're under no obligation to contest the divorce, so says the Bible. So says the Bible. So don't think otherwise. Which is why Paul says what he says in verse 15b. Paul says, a believing spouse is not bound in such circumstances. Why, Paul? Because God has called us to live in peace. In other words, in that situation, you're not bound to try and prop up the marriage or save the marriage if your unbelieving spouse is ready to leave. You can let them go. You can let them go. And if that takes place, then as you think about then that, then surely the spouse is then free to remarry. It's not the best thing, but they can. Because Paul is giving apostolic injunction here that the divorce is okay in that verse 15 setting. Okay, sexual immorality happens in a marriage. If you would like to divorce, you can. 
You don't have to, but you can. And here is another situation where make, which makes uh, remarriage a possibility. Okay, then verse 16, right? Is that a positive statement then or is that a negative statement? Right? How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Right? You see that on those little devotional calendars. Is Paul saying, hang on. You might save them. Hang on. Or is he saying, let them, let them go. It's okay. Let them go. 1 Peter 3, that's the parallel text here, uh, tells us that the wife may. doesn't say she can or will. She may win over her unbelieving husband by her deeds. But there's no guarantee. So what do you say? Well, I think it's kind of clear. I think verse 15 makes it clear. You can if you want to in that situation. And then it makes verse 16, if you want to, great. If you don't want to, okay. You're not under an obligation, but if you want to, you can. Okay, so we need to wrap this up. Pretty honest of the Bible, isn't it? Straightforward, deals with us as human beings and all our sin and all our fallenness. It's wise. Marriage is wonderful, agreed. It was designed as a lifelong commitment between one man and one woman. It's wonderful. Divorce, horrible. It happens. There are exceptions that make it so, but it wasn't God's intent. Singleness is possible, but only for some. And singleness does not equal greater spirituality. Don't play that game. And if you're a believer and you've suffered through divorce, do not allow the evil one or anyone to drag you through the coals of your already forgiven sins, especially sexual sins. And if you just stand opposed to God's word in these things and you, know, you want to play an emotional game with this, this is what I would tell you. Not uh, I would tell you, not Christ, but I. My experience is the most unhappiest and frequently angriest and moodiest people I've ever known are the ones who believe in themselves and everything. A self-believer who thinks that their mind on everything is always, always right. And they have bowed to themselves as a God. And they live with the horrible fallout of idol worship. Idol worship and thus they remain unhappy. And angry. And moody. And then in the context of a marriage, they just begin to ruin everything. Finally, if you are a believer and your marriage is under great strain. And this is what I would say to you. Step number one. Humble yourself and talk to God. Ask God to to rekindle and restore and renew your marriage. He can. He's been doing it for thousands and thousands of years. There's a couple of lovely songs that come to mind. I don't know which one I want to give you. <laughs> there was one that I was listening to yesterday that had this line. I keep working my way back to you, babe. With a burning love inside. I'm working my way back to you, babe. And the happiness that died. I let it get away. Been paying every day. (laughs) You know what? Let's just end with that one. Is that okay? Let's bow together. And thank you for your attention.
Our God and Father, when we look at your word, truly, you, you are amazing. I appreciate, God, so sincerely the fact that you're so honest about the human condition when you write these pages. And you give us the help that we need. You're, you're rich in love and in kindness. And you don't, you don't lie to yourselves about who we are and what we need. Because you made us, God. And you know us. Please help every marriage in this place. Every marriage represented in this place. Those of us, things are going fine. Keep them going fine. We pray. Those of us who, who've muddled things up, have mercy on us and help us. And God, your change can be so quick and so powerful, just like when you saved us. And so we pray that same grace abounding in every marriage within the sound of my voice that needs it. Thank you for the cross. It gives clarity in everything, Father. And may the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be ours, both now and forevermore. Amen.